Happy Wednesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston directed feature, The Rocketeer. I am one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Now, Jim, tonight we're, uh, we're going to talk through Minute 13, and we've got a very special guest who's returning for the first time. Uh, <laughs> we have, uh, if any of you pick up a sense of sort of deja vu as we go through this message, or excuse me, this episode, we did uh, record this one once before. We ran into some technical issues where uh, my audio is fine, Jim's audio is fine, but our guest... Uh, the recording just didn't happen. And so rather than do sort of a karaoke episode where we, you know, print out his words and you can read them along, uh, we were very fortunate that uh, none other than uh, Pete Mummert of uh, the Indiana Jones Minute uh, has agreed to come back uh, for a makeup exam. So welcome back, Pete. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's good to good to be back for the first time. It's like those old movie trailers where they always say, exactly. see it again for the first yes, time. For the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'll try to remember what we didn't remember about this movie. But it, it, this this is a great this is a great minute that we're in. Um, and we've got a lot of great performances. Yes. Uh, we liked yeah. it so much we're doing it twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can we can think all about all about these wonderful things, and we'll probably even sound wittier this time around. So. Uh, Anyway, low expectations, Jim. Yeah. Come on, we've talked yeah. about this. Wow. Well, thinking of low expectations, here's Bigelow planning on how how little he can get out of uh, poor PV and and Cliff, who accidentally burned up uh, 300 gallons of fuel. I just love John Polito. The late John Polito was a great actor, perfectly cast in this film. He he knows how to act with a mustache, and as being a being a mustachio uh, American, I can I can <laughs> sympathize with him. <laughs> Just that whole he's got a he's got a Danny DeVito vibe about him, and he's just telling them that he'll you know <laughs> either see him see him on Saturday or you know see him at the uh, see him in court, and uh, it just yeah. it, the the the, the low point. You know, and it's just just this little guy who I, I love his <laughs> suit. I mean, we're, we're looking at his suit, and he you know he's got that really super high waisted thing, and he he's built like. It it reminds me of Danny De, DeVito uh, when he was the Penguin. He's it's just yeah. it's just accentuating how short he is. Yeah, he's the Oswald Cobblepot of this movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know Natalie dressed, getting into a, a beautiful car, um, but he just really shows who's boss. Right, you know, and he's he's just previously sort of proposed and brought up this idea with these guys of doing the stupid clown act again and you know he's a little bit sort of hesitant but as soon as he knows he has them on the hook then he's it's that little sort of mustache salute and he turns and walks gets in his car and he's not going to take any more any more discussion about it yeah now how as a uh as a guy who flies in and out of a lot of airports, is this is this a typical behavior of an FBO operator? I don't. Know. <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't comment. There's too many okay, places yeah. for which I would not be welcome yeah. again. No, you, no, you. They're can't all wonderful. Uh, the fuel prices are always fair. Service is excellent everywhere. Please welcome me back. <laughs> well, I was curious about fuel prices because he was talking about. They can pay him back five dollars a show, and I was curious how like how long it would take them to pay him back. And it, right. the best I could tell, gasoline in 1938 was about 10 cents a gallon. And um, I'm not sure if aviation fuel would have been similar. Yeah, it depends so much on what they would have been burning. It would have uh, at least roughly been the equivalent of whatever sort of the highest octane uh, car gas would have been. Mm-hmm. But an operation like this, too, it, it certainly wouldn't be impossible. They would be burning something sort of lower, lower octane. So uh, at the time, it certainly would have been sim- uh, similar. 
in modern times, uh, typical avgas, what we call 100 low lead, is is usually about uh, 50% more than uh, there may be premium uh, premium car gas. So if if that's th- three bucks a gallon, we might pay four fifty a gallon for for avgas. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So even if you assume it's a little bit more. And then, uh, you know, I did the the thing, I think maybe you might have uh, too as well, Pete, just to see what was $5 worth back then uh-huh. and, uh, or what would it be equivalent now? And, you know, you get some different numbers, but I came up with some around 85 bucks. Yeah. It's a lot of money. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, a- <laughs> so it's a, you know, huge inflation. It's still, it's not necessarily a ton of money to make, you know, you know, per week <laughs> when you tell me, uh-huh. you know, I'm going to do one, one, uh, one air show a weekend or whatever it was he's proposing. But, uh, but I was curious how much of their take that is like, is $5 what they make or is $5 just a small percentage of what they're making. And he's just like yeah. skimming a little bit off the top. But it, it was interesting when I was looking through this, I, I came across a, an, an old magazine article. It was from December, 1938's popular aviation magazine. And they were sort of bemoaning the fact that while the cost of operating a powerboat was higher than operating a light plane, there were hundreds of powerboats to every plane. And then they were saying that while a small plane operating costs were comparable to a motor car, there were thousands of cars to each plane. And I, I just loved the optimism. Like it, Oh, it, absolutely. They're just sort of imagining a plane in every garage and everyone's going to fly to yep. work. And, and you know, and it, it's funny. I, mean, I can see just past my monitor on my bookshelf, there's, an, there's a book I've got uh, – I, it's this one's probably about 1950, 52. So it's a little ways after World War II. But the title is "An Airplane in Every Garage." It's exactly <laughs> what what they were thinking. And uh, you know, jumping ahead a few years from 1938, when the Rocketeer is set, 1946, the first full year after the end of World War II, was a huge combined boom and bust for general aviation in the U.S. Uh-huh. You know, we, we we made hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pilots in the war. The war is over. We're optimistic again. We're rebuilding. All these pilots are coming back. Everybody's going to want to fly. You know, forget cars. We're all going to have airplanes. And uh, I, w- I would have to assume even to this day that 1946 was one of the biggest years in general aviation production. So many new models came out and so many companies came and went or came and went within a few years when, uh, you know, when I, to my way of thinking, unfortunately, that boom never really, you know, never really happened. But, uh, but a lot of those, uh, a lot of those airplanes though did survive and, and stay strong and flying today. Well, that boom is, I think that boom, the timing of that's fascinating because th- there are two things this movie makes me think of. And one is it really, it captures, I think, an old California that doesn't exist anymore that I think is right. really an amazing thing. And the other thing is my, my father-in-law, uh, my late father-in-law learned to fly right around 1946. Like he was too young to go to war and he got his pilot's license before he was old enough to have a driver's license for his car. Wow. And he flew an old Stearman biplane, and he used to tell these stories where he would fly over his girlfriend's house, who eventually became my mother-in-law, and he would drop parachute, like a little oil can with a parachute on it with love notes in it. And we always thought, my wife and I always thought maybe he was making these stories up, but after he passed away, we found some of the little oil cans with the parachutes, and there they were. It was, But it's just such a, you know, it seemed like such a magical time for aviation and, you know. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. My dad soloed in 1946 as well. He was probably just about exactly the same age, just a little bit too young for World War II. And he soloed in 1946 and in a Champ, which was a brand new airplane, one of the you know brand new designs of 46, and which they're uh-huh. still making uh, to this day, 70 plus years later. Oh, wow. One of, one of the designs that really stood the test of time. But uh, well, that story about uh, about the oil can and the parachutes and the notes, that's just so, 
That's the, <laughs> it's so charming. It's the kind of thing, you know, as a kid, before I was learning to fly, I was used to dream about, you know, oh man, the girls are going to love that kind of stuff, flying <laughs> uh-huh. out of the house, dropping uh-huh. things. But, <laughs> but anyway. I, I well, would totally watch that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this whole movie seems to be kind of in that similar vein as, you know, like, back as kids we had this vision of what the future was going to be like and i think a lot of it was we'd all have an airplane and a jetpack you know and this right. this movie sort of seems to show it like a different future like sort of that magical art deco future that we never really had yeah and we will we'll see later on in in this in this film we come up with an auto gyro which is uh harold pickering's dream and he his idea back there in the at least in the early 30s was to have a plane that you could just, you know, pull out of your garage and roll down the street and off you go. Right. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, I mean, he was he was quite an innovator in this thing. And when you see this, when you see, well, I don't, we're going to have to have that discussion when we get to that minute. I don't know how, how capable <laughs> an autogyro was of slowing down with, say, like a rope ladder. But, <laughs> um, yeah, we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> But that that you know that idea that you have an everyman plane that was so easy that you just get in and turn the knob and up you go, uh, uh-huh. and we're seeing that we're seeing that today. I mean, I'm sure at the time that we're recording this, there's a a viral video going around about how there's going to be uh, air taxis that are you know self propelled uh, jet turbine engines that you can fly in and out of a city, and it'll eventually replace Uber and things like that. And, it's it's all part of that same dream. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. sounds great when I mean, you try to figure out the practical applications and how this fits in with the the people that you see that are you know u- using Facebook with uh, you know while t- while e- holding a coffee cup on their knees while they're driving. Imagine that in three <laughs> dimensions. So uh, yeah, those are the aspects that we never really really predict. You go back to you know even the the '60s and the '70s, and they imagine the great connected networks of computers in the future and the electronic encyclopedias that we have in our living rooms, but. Uh, so much of which has come to pass in huge, huge ways. But, you know, nobody was predicting like YouTube trolls and you know, <laughs> yeah. commenters yeah. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or constant pictures of people's food. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or they never cats. entered into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, there was a minute back here we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, let's uh, let's, let's talk about that, that really cool movie that we've been watching. Uh, so we, we watch uh, Bigelow get in, you know, that uh, he gets in and then we have another Oh, Hal, I know you love these 30s uh, phrases, but uh, good old uh, Cliff drops the line about <laughs> yes. uh, he's a lousy nickel nurser. And it's just like, oh, just you know, squeezing that nickel, making the buffalo yes. cry. And I can't, even, I can't even imagine what the possible equivalent would be today, you know, just maybe a cheap jerk. But I, I don't even know. But it's just we just we don't have insults like that. We don't have good phrases like that mm-hmm. anymore. But yeah, uh, right. but thanks to the soaring popularity of this podcast, we're bringing them back. Yeah, so if yeah, <laughs> we're influencing the, the lexicon, <laughs> the, the the lousy nickel nurses out there will, will yes. you know, join us. Right. Um, so we're uh, we're, we're going to start talking about the uh, that that beautiful well, not it used to be beautiful plane in the background right. there, the, the JN one, the, the Miss uh, Mabel, uh, which is variously referred to on the uh, when you watch the cl- uh, closed circuit uh, the. Uh, the closed captioning, it switches back and forth between Miss Mabel and Miss Maypole. So I'm going with Mabel, even though I think it's made out of maple. So maybe that's you know. Right. With the, but you can see uh, you can see Mabel with a B painted on the cowling in one shot yeah. in this minute. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and I was curious. You know, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, Pete, that there's there's another uh, there's another name painted on the side of this airplane that we see in this minute, and uh, 
and you know, folks, as you know, we we've, we've had some of this conversation before. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I consider myself, you know, among the biggest, uh, you know, Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies fans of of all time. And then this guy Pete wanders onto the show and explains uh, a, a Bugs Bunny reference I've been missing for more than twenty five years in this movie, <laughs> and. Uh, I was uh, I was humbled and amazed and excited and it was a very complicated time for me. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so Pete, tell us about the other name that's on the side of this airplane. Well, yeah, I'm curious. I, actually, I think both names have a great story, but the one I think is really cool, the Fearless Freep. And I like I didn't know I didn't get the reference immediately either, but I I did a little research and it was a there was a Looney Tunes cartoon that came out I think in 1948 called The High Diving Hare. And Bugs Bunny is trying to, he's, at a, he's in front of a circus tent, and he's trying to get customers to come in and see a, di- a high dive act. And the high diver is called the Fearless Freep. And Yosemite, Yosemite Sam comes along and buys, like, most of the tickets. And then he gets into the show, and Freep doesn't show up. So he, he forces Bugs Bunny at gunpoint to dive. Like He says, well, if Freep's not going to dive, you're going to dive. And then the rest of the cartoon is Bugs Bunny finding various ways that he ends up making Yosemite Sam dive, like over and over and over. <laughs> you can already hear the whistle in your head, the the, uh, the Doppler yeah, sound. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fall like and then the little <laughs> at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. W- wanting to tuck oh, your ears, that's... wanting to tuck your ears inside of a rubber cap. And just... <laughs> <laughs> but I like that the freak, the fearless freak, came about ten minutes after the Rocketeer. So theoretically. Uh, the Rocketeer could be the fearless freep. Like he could, he could do his dive, and with the rocket pack, he could, he could that's, do that pretty that's, easily. Yeah, that's, that's true. Really. It's um, it is. A, it, I mean, I know it's in the it's in shabby condition here, but it's just it's just great so, seeing an old biplane with all the little oh, yeah. wooden features yeah. and the uh, all, and, you know, all the guy wires, all the rigging. You know, you spend half your life sort of rigging an airplane like this one during a restoration and getting it just just so. It's funny too, as you look at close up shots of the airplane. I guess if we haven't. Formally identified. This is this is a, a standard J one. Um, looks a lot like the better known Curtis Jenny, but it's actually a bit bigger airplane. You notice the interplane struts are a lot taller, so the wings sit up higher. It's got a little bit of sweep to the wing. A few other things, but a similar airplane built for basically the same purpose. It was uh, would have been uh, uh, one of the uh, um, the Army Air Service uh, World War One era uh, trainers, and then also sort of a spotter aircraft liaison, anything else like that they might use it for. Um, the first one well, flew in 1916 or so. Uh, go ahead, Pete. Oh, no, I, I, I thought that was interesting what you were talking about, because one of the things I, I thought was interesting is it seems like this plane was common in, like, barnstorming and flying circus kind of stuff. And at the right. beginning of the minute, Cliff, or, uh, Bigelow's talking about they're going to do their flying circus clown act. And that made me wonder if, if the Mabel that the plane is named after refers to Mabel Cody, who was kind of a, a daredevil... Uh, flying circus Aviatrix, act back yeah. at this time. Yes, you know it very well could be, and and yeah, you're absolutely right. The standard J ones and you know the Jenny was was built in much much higher numbers. It was so it was much more ubiquitous. But right at the end of World War World War One, you had uh, pilots all over the country, even eventually including somebody like Charles Lindbergh, buying these airplanes up as surplus. And then setting off and barnstorming. And it, you know, it would start as something very unofficial, just I'm a pilot, I'm an airplane, pick a little town in the Midwest, fly, circle the town a few times, land in some farmer's field, hope he doesn't come out with a shotgun, give <laughs> give the farmer a ride, and then hang out a sign and say, you know, see your town from the air for 50 cents or whatever they were charging at the time. And that was how, uh, you know, starting um, maybe around 1920 or so and, and up through uh, – certainly through the mid to late 20s, that was really how most of America uh, 
if you weren't living in a big city in particular, that's how they saw their first airplanes was these, you know, these barnstormers flying around. We've, we've talked a bit uh, and, and we'll talk here and there about The Great Waldo Pepper. So another wonderful film that talks about that era quite a bit and a, and a standard J-1. In fact, this very airplane isn't uh, Waldo Pepper's hero airplane in that movie, but it is the Dillhofer airplane that you see flying in Waldo Pepper. Uh, I have a question. If you know, Since we're, we're jumping back and forth to the, uh, to the Waldo Pepper, one of, the, one of the key features in The Great Waldo Pepper was the change when the... Uh, well, not the FAA, but it, at the time it was the CAA. Right. Uh, had put down a lot of rules against things like, um, you know, wing walking and, and uh, like the, the low level passes through downtowns and you couldn't right. fly under 500 feet and things like that. So I, I'm thinking just as the backstory here, PV and Secord relied on those old barnstormer days to make a living. And then mm-hmm. that living dried up, say, 34 so like four years before this would be when they had to stop doing their cross-country stuff because it was illegal right yeah there were so many more rules about it you still saw a little bit of it but that's when the pilots started getting together and say let's do a let's do something a little bit more organized and uh you know we'll have the the flying circus sort of named ironically or otherwise after uh after baron von richthofen red baron's squadron he called it his the flying circus and and that whole concept came about saying, well, we'll, we'll get together and then we'll do, you know, a, literally like a traveling circus. We'll come to your town. We make an agreement with the local airport because there were airports by then and, and do that sort of thing. And then I think what you're seeing here with uh, with with Bigelow is, you know, granted, a lot of this is around the races. But you also get the sense that this is one of those places where there's, you know, there's there's a show here in town every weekend, which seems like it would be impossible to sustain. But certainly when he talks about, you know, you're going to do the clown act and you can do it for months until you pay me back, that that implies that either, you know, maybe their group might travel either in a smaller local area or it might just be, you know, come out every Sunday to the big air show at, uh, at, at Bigelow's Field. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just mm-hmm. one hill over from Hollywood. So, I mean, they've got all of L.A. to, <laughs> you know, even, even back right. then, the 30s, L.A. Uh-huh. had a lot of people. So this was just sure, a thing uh-huh. to do, like going down to Marina Del Rey or something. You go, go see the air show. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's – and as you were saying, with, with being being more organized and having kind of rules and regulations, the, the, the airmen themselves became kind of self-regulating to beat out what, you know, having the FAA impose stuff on them. They already came up with these are the rules we're going to do and this is how we're going to – we're going to handle it. And I think right. that that continues to this day with, well, you know, with the organization that you're with, Hal, I mean, you, you guys uh, kind of work on standards and things for stuff that hasn't, hasn't happened yet. So that when the government finally comes in, it, it favors the needs and, and desires of, you know, of people, the, the flying populace. I mean, I think that sure, that's where for, it goes. As independent a group as, as, you know, personally as, as pilots tend to be, um, that's it, actually, it's a really astute point you brought out, Jen, because they, you know, there is sort of a history in the in the aviation community of of um, sort of staying one step ahead of the regulators, but in a positive way, <laughs> you know, in, yeah. a, in, a, in a good and supportive way. Like I said, if we can, you know, if we can sort of police ourselves and help define what these standards should be, then, you know, then uh, we get to sort of preserve the freedom to fly and to, you know, do this thing that we all love so much. Yeah. And, you know, here we are at the, at the start of it all. When these, these are all trying to get figured out. So uh, right. anyway, back with back with Cliff and Peavy as uh, Peavy's looking over what's wrong with, the, you know, the number five cylinder shot and all this other jazz. And, he and does, you know, very quickly, Jim, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I just as you in these seconds here when we're, we've seen close up of the airplane, you can look pretty closely and you can see that the uh, the ugly patches and things are just you know, vinyl that's stuck on and, of course, the dirt that they added for the film to make it 
uh-huh. make the poor airplane look a lot worse uh, worse than it was. It was obviously a very sound, very flyable airplane, even during the making of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, if you'll indulge me, I do have to point out uh, maybe one and a half more quick things about uh, Miss Mabel here, this standard J-1. Uh, so first of all, the airplane's been re-restored fairly recently. It's down in Creve Corps near St. Louis, and it is actively flying again. So wow. it's painted. It's bright red now. It's very, very pretty. Um, but Pete, uh, I, this is something that I didn't know the first time we had this conversation, but I've, I dug up. So this airplane was in an episode of uh, Young Indiana Jones. Really? So oh, this wow. this very very airframe. Yes, it was uh, huh. flown by uh, Margaret Trapp. Was uh, was a character on the show. She was she was based. Uh, she was a real person, um, and sort of a you know an out of Africa kind of kind of scene kind of pilot uh-huh. and uh um anyway so it's it's been ages since i've watched my way through young indiana jones and i i don't know if you guys are taking that on minute by minute but... yeah not, we're, we're still negotiations about that one <laughs> sure that'll take uh, you know just about the rest of your life right to do yeah. three three seasons or three years worth yeah but anyway a uh, nice little bit of indiana jones trivia there wow, right, that that's I, was, very cool. uh, I was i was pretty excited about <laughs> well i i did i had a question about the plane itself and i can't remember if we talked about this in minute 14 before or not who would the pilot always have flown in the back seat or would the pilot generally have been in the front seat on in these trainers so in in trainers like this um certainly in the military configuration you would actually have the instructor sit in the front and then the the trainee the student pilot sit in the back now they may may put the student up front for the very first orientation introductory ride but but even that's not likely and it seems uh-huh. a little bit counterintuitive like why would you want to fly the airplane uh you know, with somebody sitting right in front of you, where you, you know, blocking your view. And in actuality, the the view ahead in an airplane like this isn't, number one, it's not all that great to begin with. You've got, you know, you've got a lot of engine and stuff in front of you. Number two, in many cases, uh, I don't actually don't think this is the case with the standard, but like uh, a little bit later biplanes, like the De Havilland Tiger Moth that I've got a lot of time in, uh, the rear seat is actually elevated a little bit. But you notice you're also behind the wings, so your peripheral vision is much, much better. In the front cockpit, um, if you are elevated, you're closer to the top wing, so you're hunched down a little bit more. And really, all you can see left and right are wings, both uh, both above and below you. Mm. And then looking ahead to, you know, you've got the engine, and this is either a Hispano Suiza or an OX-5 engine. You've got exposed cylinders and a lot of noise and racket right in front of you. So the the proper place really is in the back seat, and there's it's a lot harder to articulate, but there's something about the feel of it too. Being in an airplane like this, being a little bit behind the center of gravity, and or or maybe even just about on it, as mm-hmm. opposed to being sort of wedged up in front of it, you have a much better feel for the airplane. I, I in my opinion, especially on the ground, uh, having that broader visibility, and then just being a little bit further back, not as far back as in the GB where you're you know mm-hmm. you're sitting twenty feet behind the airplane is what it feels <laughs> what it would feel like, but. Um, but definitely a, a, a better view and a very, you know, very common configuration. It's it's unusual, but not not unheard of to find an airplane from this era up through the 40s. Uh, that's two seats in tandem like this where you wouldn't fly from the back. The Aronka Champ is a notable exception. You solo that one from the front. Uh, yeah. You have much better visibility in front. But but the biplanes primarily you would fly solo from uh, from the back with some exceptions. Okay. Wow. Were there any uh, available in a, in a side-by-side at all? I mean, I don't know if, if they'd ever been modified that way. Um, well, certainly by 1938, uh, you were seeing them in the, starting even in the late 20s, so maybe halfway between Miss Mabel's era, original era, and the time of the film. You, you, started, to see, um, you started to see airplanes like Travel Airs and things like that that were 
that were side by side, at least for passengers. So you had the passenger in a rear open cockpit. Um, and then, in fact, there was an airplane later, the company reformed, they built an airplane called the New Standard. Configuration-wise, it looks a lot like Miss Mabel here, but then you realize it is a good bit bigger. A single pilot in the back and then an open cockpit in the front, just like this one. But instead of one seat in the front, there's actually seating for four, which is unbelievable. Wow. And that was a really popular ride-hopping airplane. You cram four people in the front of it, and it's sort of club seating. Two people are sitting facing backwards. Pretty, uh, pretty unusual. Now, when they started building more of the cabin airplanes, and you started seeing that happening in the late 30s and a bit of a pause. Then, of course, after World War II, that's when you really saw side-by-side seating become a lot more common. Uh-huh. Hmm. By this time, Piper would have had at least one airplane with side, uh, side-by-side seating by, by 38 or so, but hmm. not quite as common yet. Now, on the, on the, standard, on the standard Jenny, is, is there wing warping going on while, as a control surface, or are you just re- relying on the ailerons and the, uh, and the so rudder? So these are, are just ailerons. It's funny you bring up, uh, so you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the Jenny. Again, a, a very, very similar design to the standard here, but, but a competing design. Yeah. Uh, Jenny designed by, by uh, Glenn Curtis, one of the great pioneers of, of aviation. And he, he was not the very first person to use ailerons, but he was really the first person to put them into production on airplanes like the Jenny, but even earlier than that, his Curtis Pusher designs. And one of the things that drove him to it was the fact that uh, he, by using ailerons, he could build airplanes as early as 1909, 1910 without violating the Wright Brothers patent because the Wright Brothers ah, patent specifically mm. called out wing warping. Mm. Now, at the you know now when we look at an airplane, you think, I probably don't want to bend my wings while I'm flying. <laughs> Nothing about that seems intuitive. It seems like that's a good, good or okay thing to do. Um, but uh, but at the time, that was you know that was what was tested. That's what was uh, what worked. And people like Blario were, were using it uh, and things like that. But when Curtis came along, Curtis was a bitter rival of the Wrights. And then of course by by the time of the film here, Curtis Wright had become a company. They'd merged and started building things like the P40 and things like that. So it was a bit ironic that these bitter rivals ended up there. Uh, their company names anyway became uh, became tied together. So, but to make it clear, no wing warping on the on the J one. So the, those tensioning wires that are going along the outside. I'm just looking at somewhere around like uh, second thirty six. There, there seems to be like tensioning wires going out to the outside edges. But I guess that's just for stability and keeping the keeping the wings flat, straight and level. Right. Yeah. And if you are at say at minute thirty oh, or excuse me, second thirty six, <laughs> like we're at minute thirty six yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess I'm looking at the instrument panel in, in that in that section, maybe like 32 or so. You can see behind Cliff, you can see the upper surface, the aileron. There's a little, there's a little sort of post that comes down into the frame. Yeah. Yes. So that's the. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the actual term for it, but basically, that's that's a little bit of a wood structure. The cables are going up and over the top of it, and that's giving you the leverage to swing that aileron up and down. So and it's then, kind of like a catenary, uh, just uh, sure, yeah, a, yeah. Yeah, and then you can see the diagonal wires that yeah that just go out to the outside edges of the airplane, um, and that is all just about uh, that is all just about structure. This was before okay. we started building airplanes with monocoque structure, or the the, the standard from nineteen sixteen was somewhat before the monocoque structures where you had airplanes where the skin was part of the structure and you didn't need so many bracing wires. And as we've talked about with the GB, we still saw some of that in that airplane you know, from the early 30s that we were still using some of this bracing wires and we've, you know, basically gotten away from that pretty much completely now for the most part. You, you are definitely getting into your aerostructure jonesing right now. <laughs> 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 I, 
well, let's. Um, you, were, you brought up. Uh, you brought up the instrument panel, and uh, let's talk a little about about Lady Luck's uh, new digs, <laughs> where she's at. She's got a. Yes. She's got a couple of. Uh, <laughs> Uh, new, uh, different, uh, a lot different from the uh, from the GB. This is a right, a, not a, quite a generation before, but a decade before at least. And uh, <clears throat> I think there's a couple of uh, a uh, non in chronologically correct uh, uh, spots on there with uh, things but like the motors. The the one thing that comes out to me in particular that's not quite uh, quite right is just um, the the markings. If you look, and I'm looking at second 35, so lower left of the screen, there's an RPM gauge or a tachometer. And uh, you notice it's got sort of that inner circle and outer circle, and it's actually a, uh, the needle would go around, potentially go around twice. Actually, no, excuse me, I'm mistaken on that one. That's just the colored markings. But if you notice the yellow marking, and there's kind of a hint of a red marking. Yeah. And uh, um, actually, this one may actually go around twice at the top, because you do see, you see the five, and then there's like a little 25 right underneath it. So yes, this would go around, would sort of loop around, not twice, but it would go sort of past the top. So you start at 500 RPM, then you go all the way up and around, and then now 5 is now 2,500 RPM. Anyway, long story short, I'm really, really rambling here, guys, but the uh, um, those colored markings you can actually see are, are, as far as I can tell, actually sort of stuck on the glass. And those would be little things like, you know, like little vinyl cutouts you'd put on there. And that was a much more modern thing. When this airplane left the factory, um, you really didn't see colored warning areas, and we didn't really agree on what standards would be and things like that. So when you look at... The other gauges, the upper left, um, it's almost certainly uh, oil temperature. And then in the, the middle, uh, we've got, uh, it would just be oil quantity. Uh, and then on the right, it's really tough to tell with as, as rough as the gauge is. And as, you it know, starts with a 30, so I don't know. Yeah, it starts with a 30 and goes on. That's probably just like an overall engine temperature gauge. Okay. So it wasn't that uncommon to have. Actually, you know what? That could actually be a coolant temperature. I, I oh. got to remind myself this airplane has a big flat radiator right on the front. So this was a water cooled engine. Hmm. I've, so, I've got a question. Then, that, okay. Yeah. Oh, we, we, ahead, just, we just covered uh, in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, they were flying the Ford trimotor and they dumped the fuel. And I was wondering if this plane has oh, a fuel right. dump mechanism of some Ooh. kind. Was that common this early? Probably not. And and I'll be honest and tell you that I was never sure. I, I've got maybe two hours in a Ford trimotor myself. Uh-huh. And as far as I know, um, we like, so our, my organization, EA, where I work here in Oshkosh, we have one that we fly on tours. That's how I've gotten to fly it a couple of times. And I don't, as far as I know, Unless I, I've missed something, we don't actually have a fuel dumping mechanism. That wasn't something you saw that much of until a little bit later. So the Ford Trimotor, the all-metal airliner of the late 20s, um, and a real mm-hmm. groundbreaking groundbreaking airplane. We're talking about barnstormers. You know, most people, the first airplane they see is something like Miss Mabel here landing in a field. And then, you know, it, suddenly it seems like about a week later, you can go buy a ticket on this, at the time, very, very modern <laughs> Ford Trimotor. and. Uh-huh. And uh, across the country by airplane and train in combination. Indoors, in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, indoors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a, a journey that would used to take weeks can now be done in, in maybe two and a half days. Yeah. Anyway, so you saw the fuel dumping mechanisms come around much, much later when landing weights became more important. So okay. just any modern airliner flying now will, will be able to dump fuel. Not entirely sure that was something possible in the Ford Trimotor, but of course it's an important plot device. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly most lighter airplanes uh, like this, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a common thing. Now, all that said, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure about the two silver knobs on the far left of this panel. Uh, in that, 
could they both be like a them, lean and mix or it yeah it very well could be um without seeing the rest of the panel and we might get a better look at the panel i think we do when when uh when malcolm uh, no spoilers but he's flying it later so we'll see if we can yeah. dig into it further what they look like to me they look just like a, a typical primer knob from that era but i'm i hard pressed to figure out why we would have two of them and a primer knob is just uh, you just pump a little bit of fuel into the engine before you start it. Wouldn't they? Wouldn't they have like I, I, I'm, the primers that I've seen usually have like an air hole in the front that you that you cover? But I guess I guess you don't need it on this one, or so. Well, yeah, and that's a good point. And it's looking mainly just at the markings along the side, and there's a it almost looks like they they have the little locking mechanism like a primer does. But I also could just be going cross-eyed staring at pixels. Um, <laughs> And Would you say that this this is actually in the plane? This is actually the inside of a Miss Mabel, or you don't think this is a uh, a mock up of just you know a piece of uh, a piece of Luan with? Uh, with I would say this is most likely inside the airplane. Um, now, if I if I've read the history of this particular airplane correctly, it was it was pretty much a ground up restoration in about 1985. So the only reason I'm hesitant is all this. Okay, that was six years before the film was shot. Um, I'd be surprised. It just the, they've done an amazing job of look, making all the gauges look so rough. If this was a restoration that had you know fairly recently been completed, so um, I think it's a real panel. I think it's probably what's really in the airplane. But again, we can you know we we look at that maybe in in a later minute. Um, but I'm just a little bit skeptical because the 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 gauges are so rough, and if this was a fresh restoration, those would all look. After only six years, they'd still all look pretty nice and pretty fresh, and you'd be, it would feel weird. To, it's one thing to let the crew come in and put vinyl cutouts on your airplane to make it look like terrible patches and then blow, blow fake dirt on it, but it feels a little bit weird to go in and make the panel look terrible. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, maybe we could call the uh, – we should check up – maybe they're listening to us. If they, the, the folks down in Missouri with the uh, with the restoration ask them if, they, That's if a great those point. are yeah, still can, on there. And, yeah, we, we can ask away, ask for photos of the panel. And then oh. uh, very quickly before we get away from the panel, yeah, you know, we're love Jenny's picture is tucked in right behind uh, an old school altimeter, that uh, a single hand altimeter that goes from zero and then goes counterclockwise around. Counterclockwise, show, yeah. Which is which is also uh, you know very unusual for today, um, and it's showing us. And you know what? I think in the first time in this minute, I was smart enough to look up the field elevation at Santa Maria. Um, I don't where the film was shot. I don't recall what that is now, but um, you notice right now it's not set at zero, which is. Which is correct. You, unless you're absolutely at sea level, if you're in you know Death Valley or somewhere, um, or on the water, uh, your altimeter is not at zero when you're on the ground. It's actually the you know the elevation of the area, assuming you've set the barometric pressure uh, in the altimeter. So um, it looks like 261 feet is the elevation. Yeah. So that's awesome, Pete. You you absolutely rule. You've learned how to. How to Google quickly. <laughs> You've earned your wings today. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so this altimeter is showing us right flat at 500 feet. And um, that's also not, the airplane's not flying. One of the first things we do before we fly an airplane like this is we adjust the altimeter to the current, uh, the current pressure, the current uh, barometric pressure. You know, is it high pressure? Is it low pressure? We find out that exact number. Uh, we dial the altimeter so it matches that. And then, so now the altimeter is calibrated and will read co- correctly for the flight. But as we fly, especially mm. we go from point A to point B, you've got to reset it periodically by knowing what the pressure is. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't know what the pressure is when you get an airplane like this, but you know that airport is 261 feet, then you just turn the knob until the needle points at 261, and that tells you the tells you the pressure. Okay. But anyway, point being, nice little touch that the altimeter isn't just bottomed out at zero. 
uh-huh. um, it would always be somewhere above zero unless there was a, you know, I guess maybe a tornado or something blowing through. <laughs> <and a fresh laughs> Flying out of the Netherlands. Or, yeah. <laughs> um, question to the, uh, in the history of instrumentation, when did the artificial horizon become a standard thing on, you know, in front of you? So, yeah, it's a, a, an excellent question. And I would, I would just be giving you uh, an educated guess. And it's funny, as you say, as I'm looking across the room, I've got, I've got an artificial horizon sitting on my windowsill. That's from the, our family airplane that was built in 1944. And this was the thing when I was four years old, we bought the airplane. I had to sit on, I had to sit on phone books to fly it. I was a four year old, you know, learning to fly. Back when they had phone books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Back when they had phone books. See, Um, and I still couldn't see over the instrument panel. So I would stare at this artificial horizon to keep the, uh, keep the airplane level. Um, (laughs) So you were on ILS from a young age. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was an instrument pilot as a kid. Then, of course, you got Stephen Hawking, so I, or Stephen Hawking, listen to me, geez, Stephen Wright. Wow. Very different people, very, very different people. And so I married an axe murderer doing his bit about how the artificial horizon is better than the real horizon. But uh, anyway, to answer your question, um, I would say if you want to talk about really becoming standard, um, certainly in, in private and general aviation airplanes, that you didn't see until a, a good bit after World War II. It's, you know, your Piper Cubs and things like that, they made well into the 40s, didn't have them. Um, in terms of, of them being, you know, existing and things like this, we'd be talking mid to late 30s, so right around this time frame. Um, it's still not uncommon today to find, you know, restoration of an older airplane, you know, maybe up through the 40s, even early 50s. It's a little bit of a stretch that just doesn't happen to have one because you're flying in, in visual conditions. You've got you, you've got your eyes. You can look outside. You can look at the wings. You can see whether you're level or not. But uh, um, but certainly in the, uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s, they really became standard on just about just about everything. Now, your World War mm-hmm. II fighters and things are being de- starting to be developed about the time of this movie. Uh, those would have had them because you're preparing to fly in you know all weather all manner of conditions flying at night things like that right okay so we finally get to the point where uh cliff decides he's going to jump in and, and see see if uh he can fall through the bottom of miss mabel uh and he bangs into something rather rather loud and uh he's not sure uh what it is uh, for, after saying he said he could fly a shoebox if it had wings which is a great line <laughs> right um, but he uh, he doesn't know what it is, and PV's asking what you know what is it, and he said there's something under the seat. We get a we get a nice view of uh, of that wicker based um, chair, which uh, we had talked previously about the ability of getting people that can do caning to to this day uh, for you know restoring old old chairs. And I just can't imagine how long that must take just wrapping all the the little pieces of cane around that around that beat up old chair. Yeah. Um, and again, considering what you had said about this is this was a restoration for 1985. I just wondered how it wore down so quickly, uh, unless they kind of you know notched it up a bit, which I can't imagine them. Even if it's Disney, I can't imagine them letting them do it. But uh, yeah, it's a beat up old chair. Well, I'm I'm definitely interested now to to talk to the current owners a bit more and see if we can figure out a little bit more about the history of it. And that that number that I gave you, that 1985, is just from the uh, from the aircraft registration. And so there's a number of reasons why that might not be oh, okay. exactly correct either. But uh, but it'd be interesting to interesting to dig into. Yeah. And is uh, this the first time that we find out that PV's real name is Peabody? Yeah, we we're looking at his little um, ditty bag there, which I'm assuming. This was when he was from like the Army Air Corps, and that's an old Army Air Corps duffel bag, where they had sprayed his uh, his name. And I think at one of these things, I stopped it briefly, and he had a uh, 
It says MC Peabody, as far as I can tell. Huh. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. No, it is Peabody. Excuse me. There was another place where there may have been a, a, a this is not the place. It just says Peabody sprayed on it. This might have been, uh, my, my assumption in the backstory was that he was in the Army, you know, the American Expeditionary Forces, the Army Air Corps back in the First World War. You know, he got into mechanics part of it afterwards. But yeah, this is actually where we find out that his full name is Peabody. Right. Mm. Yeah, we we do see pictures of him. Yeah, we know he was a pilot. We see pictures of him in the Bulldog Cafe in later scenes. You know, where he's decked out in his flying gear and he's posing next to, I think, actually next to a next to a Jenny. But we'll we'll yeah. uh, we'll freeze frame and zoom in and make ourselves crazy <laughs> when we get yeah. to those scenes in <laughs> those minutes. Just a little bit of speculation here. What besides doing the flying circus thing? And they said they haven't done that in four years. So. Besides build, you know, building and uh, purchase, you know, purchasing and building the GB, what do they do for a living? What does does PB fix planes? Does uh, I mean, does does Secord still like dust crops in orange groves? What, what do you think their other jobs are? Uh, th- those are probably my two best guesses. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure PV's the you know he's the local Mister Fix It. He's the he's the Joe Patroni of 1938. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, you know if you feel if you'll allow yeah. the throwback. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, Cliff could be, you know, probably crop dusting. Um, somebody in his position almost certainly would have spent at least a short stint flying the mail. Um, okay. That was that was done privately for a while. Then the, the government came in and mandated that the Army pilots do it, and that ended up being rather disastrous. Um, so that would have been a common thing. I, I also see Cliff, you know, when he talks about, you know, you fly a shoebox if you put wings on it. Um He's probably a, a test pilot, probably one of the guys you go to on the airport when you're building something. You know, a, this world of, of air racing, there's there's competition, but there is a lot of cooperation and camaraderie as well. And it wouldn't be wouldn't be all unheard of for uh, somebody else to be building an airplane to race and, you know, coming to Cliff if he's the best guy on the field and having him do the test flights. So he might have flown something like the Miss Los Angeles or the other ones out there and just, here, you haven't dug a hole with a plane. Why don't you go out there and try out my plane for the first time? And... <laughs> right. <laughs> now, would uh, I, I'm just wondering, like, uh, over the top of Bigelow's hangar that they're, that they're in, we've got the two signs. One is for Curtis and the other one is for, I think, Pratt & Whitney. Would PV be like an authorized mechanic? Do they? I, mean, I didn't know if they have, like, certification programs for people selling stuff. Maybe he was working as a contractor for Curtis and... Uh, and Pratt and Whitney to work on their their products out in the field. Yeah, you very well could have been, you know, could have been sort of a dealer or, you know, sort of anointed by them. Um, and and there were, you know, there were mechanic certifications which just sort of starting to come into play in this era. But, you know, you also wouldn't be surprised that uh, if you're semi-independent, and we don't really know who owns this airport. Does Bigelow own it? Does, does he just own this hangar? Does he, is he just the air show operator? Is he the, is he the operator of the whole airport? Which he probably is because of his concerns about the fuel truck and all that. So, you know, he may well just be selling billboard space to the highest bidder. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, he does, I mean, it does say on the, under his, uh, under the sign, Bill, uh, uh, Bigelow uh, oh, Aeronautics. Right. It does say that he does uh, sales and or storage and service. So, so he right. puts planes up. He's got the hangar and yeah. he also does service. So I'm thinking maybe he might he might have other deals. I, I get the feeling that Bigelow has a lot of fingers right. and a lot of pie. So he may have a yeah, whole that must, coterie of that folks mustache that work is too for small for him to not be involved in a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> So, so they they do pick up the uh, the duffel bag there and and wander over to you know clean off 
they actually have a spot with, you know, <laughs> a clean spot to put it down. Um, but we're not going to find out this minute what uh, what's in that magic little uh, canvas bag. We're going to have to wait until tomorrow where you can hear uh, an unrepeated <laughs> yes. uh, episode. Way more of natural, less stilted. <laughs> yeah. Pete, thanks for coming back and, and doing a sure, uh, special pleasure. edition of of your previous <laughs> your previous appearance. And I uh, hope I'll to have you to. back on again as, uh, as we get further into this. But we'll leave PV and uh, Cliff. They're about to open a bag. And we'll get literally the big reveal tomorrow on the Rocketeer Minute. So uh, for those of you listening on uh, online, I hope you've already subscribed out there on iTunes and on uh, Google Play. Just go to either of those devices, uh, either of those services and click subscribe and get this delivered to you hot and fresh every day. Join us at the big website, uh, rocketeerminute.com, where you can read about all of these episodes, pick up previous episodes, uh, pick up some cool swag we've got out there, and uh, just draw about the about the show. Or if you want to also talk on social media, we're available on Facebook at the uh, Rocketeers Bulldog Cafe. Just look for it. And everybody's everybody's there. Lots of cool pictures people are posting lately of, uh, of old ships and things. So it's really neat. Join us there. Um, but please join us here tomorrow as uh, as we get into uh, finding out what's in that bag with uh, with Pete again. So until uh, next time, over and out. Get him, kid.